welcome to everybody. And today we'll look at the land of opportunity, third week of American Dreams and Gospel Promises. Um, I would just take us back to last week enough to remind us that when we talked about the founders, we noticed that they never quoted or referred to that city on a hill image or the language of the original settlers, Jamestown, Massachusetts Bay Colony, Pilgrims, etc. And we asked, why might that be the Enlightenment? It is the Enlightenment. And the shift that happens with the Western Enlightenment, and it really only affects Western Europe and North America. Um, it is not a global phenomenon. Um, in fact, in some places, the, the shifts that took place in Western Europe and North America then, in some places, really have not quite been experienced, either philosophically or politically, in the same ways. Um, but <clears throat> certainly our heritage and the heritage of American national identity, the Enlightenment was a crucial turning point because the notion of who I am as a person shifted from I am who God made me to be. And in that, in the view of the settlers, um, of the, the pilgrims in Jamestown and Massachusetts Bay Colony, early, early 17th century, pre-enlightenment, who I am is who God made me to be. And the best I can do is to fulfill that. Uh, we see this in Luther, who of course is another century before that. But Luther was fond of, of saying and made a positive point out of the fact that some people are called to be um, washerwomen. Some people are called to be carpenters. Some people are called to be uh, you know, farriers. Some people are called to be um, princes. Some people are called to be knights. Some people are called to be royalty. And in every, some people are called to be priests and religious people. In every one of those callings, there is a responsibility to live out that calling in a faithful way the best you can. But there was no notion in Luther that if you were a carpenter, you should aspire to be an architect. Or that if you were a washerwoman, you should aspire to own a, you know, a, a multi-point laundry. <laughs> um, or and it was, God has made you who you are. With the Enlightenment, that shifts. And the understanding, Rene Descartes is famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. And it's the I. It's the I of the sovereign self. I can be whatever I want to make of myself. I am responsible for who I am. And if I want to aspire to and achieve a different place in life, in society, in the world, then I can do that. So it's individualism more than clan or family. Um, and it's my responsibility to live up, to, to create myself rather than God has made myself and my responsibility is simply to fulfill within whatever that defined self is.
That's the first thing about the Enlightenment. The second one is, again, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And the whole rise of human reason as the ground of knowing what is and what is true. Um, Galileo famously got in trouble for arguing that when he looked at the heavens, they didn't operate the way the Bible said they should. And he said, how can I deny what I see in the heavens? And the church said, deny it all you will, you're excommunicated because the Bible, revelation, God tells us what is and what is true. And your understanding of the world needs to conform to that truth that has been revealed. With the Enlightenment, Galileo is in a sense vindicated. Um, and the shift takes place that at least with regard to observable phenomena, um, things that are s subject to our human senses and our human assessment, judgment, measurement, experimentation, etc. Human reason is the, the uh, arbiter of what is and what is true. That leaves large spaces for scriptural witness uh, to be God's truth. Um, affairs of the heart, matters of uh, faith and belief, uh, relational uh, uh, dynamics. These are all things that you know, God can still have a free hand in talking about. Their scripture can still have a free hand in addressing those things. Um, what scripture no longer has a free hand in addressing is um, what is the um, astrophysical relationship between the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars or the way in which the human body functions. Why does it function that way? That can well be a matter of revelation, uh, faithful discernment, whatever we want to call it. But, but how it functions, that now uh, natural science investigates and explores more and more deeply. And revelation for in the Enlightenment view, revelation cannot be true if it counteracts the truth that is built into God's creation in that way. In that sense, it's still a revealed knowledge, but it's revealed in the way creation is structured that we can analyze with our reason. Um, it is not revealed only in sacred texts. So, um, that's the piece that I'm going to bring forward from last session to this session. So we've looked at um, a more perfect union as the founder's notion. And what we come to today is something that develops about 100 years later, 80 to 100 years later, during the 19th century. And that is an American dream of America as a land of opportunity. And how fortunate that we get to do this study sitting here in Iowa, where since 1999, the state welcome signs have all branded Iowa as fields of opportunities. 
If you want to talk about a land of opportunity, what phrase comes to mind in terms of what would represent in an individual life the success of America as a land of opportunity? How about rags to riches, Horatio Alger, right? Um, the notion that anybody can start anywhere on the social ladder or anywhere in the world. And if they come to America, the opportunities are such that if they just apply themselves, they can succeed brilliantly. So when we have these very prominent, very public, celebrity kinds of figures who do absolutely represent a rags-to-riches journey, it's easy to see how this notion of America as the land of opportunity is a reasonable representation of who we are. This is an American dream that you can name eight people right here, um, all of them I think still alive, who uh, embody this rags-to-riches American dream of a land of opportunity. The paradigm for the land of opportunity and the rags-to-riches story was a 19th century industrialist by the name of Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie was born in that duplex house in the right-hand picture. Uh, there was a weaver in Dunfermline, County Fife of Scotland, uh, who uh, owned the home and... Carnegie's father was a weaver, and so Carnegie and his parents and siblings for a time lived in half of this house. Um, when he was 13, the, the family came to the United States because things had gotten really difficult in Scotland, and they saw America as a land of opportunity, settled in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, um, and Carnegie first as a weaver, then as a Telegrapher, somebody work a telegraph operator, and ultimately, as the industrialist that he was, founded what became U.S. Steel. Um, uh, Carnegie uh, rose from uh, his beginnings to become, at one point, the wealthiest man in America. Um, for a short time after he sold U.S. Steel, he was more wealthy than John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller passed him again, but um, he, was, he was up there. Um, died in 1919 in Lenox, Massachusetts. A great rags-to-riches story, right? Well, Carnegie codified his understanding of the world in which he lived and the way in which it should operate in an article, actually two articles, um, in the North American Review in 1889. And the article was titled, The Gospel of Wealth. Um, Carnegie understood this to be the correct understanding of wealth and how it is developed and how it should be dealt with in society. And he organized it under a number of laws, there is the law of competition in which he says, we have it, it's here, we can't possibly 
get rid of it. It's, it's not something you can argue with. Um, and he says, but it's a good thing because it is what assures the survival of the fittest. So then, the, and out of that law of competition, there is a law of wealth going to the talented. Those who have particular talents in business affairs, in lead organizing and leading industrial enterprises, they can unavoidably, they will unavoidably accumulate to themselves far more wealth than they need for their personal sustenance and their family. Um, he calls it surplus revenue, that they can't help but have surplus revenue because of their distinctive talents. Then he moves to the law of the philanthropy of wealthy, talented individuals, which we'll get into a little more deeply. And finally, the laws of distribution and accumulation, which he says remain undisturbed by his proposals. What he means by that is that the way in which wealth gets distributed and the way in which wealth gets accumulated, if you just look around you at the world, it's distributed unevenly, it's accumulated unevenly, and that's a kind of natural process in society. And he doesn't want to disturb that natural process the way, for example, and this is his counterexample, the one he's arguing against in the late 19th century, communism. We don't want to upend society and economy by interfering in the laws of distribution and accumulation. But we want to work with what is given to us in the natural course of things out of these laws of competition, wealth to the talented, and the philanthropy of wealthy, talented individuals. So that the laws of distribution and accumulation remain undisturbed and allowed to function in their natural ways. So this law of the philanthropy of wealthy, talented individuals um, essentially says that people who are wealthy, what their, their surplus revenue makes them agents and trustees for the poorer people. Um, so they become responsible for the wealth of the community, which has now concentrated in their hands, on behalf of all the poorer people. And he makes the case that large sums spent by wealthy individuals for the common good will, in modern lingo, outperform the smaller sums that would result if you distributed all of that wealth evenly across the population. Because, in his estimation, the vast majority of people don't really know how to manage money well. They'll fritter it away, It'll never end up doing a lot of good, but these wealthy individuals who apparently are not only specially talented in accumulating money, but also have some particular gift or insight for what the community needs, um, they are the ones who can do the most for the common good by using their wealth, surplus wealth, um, for the common good. He says, so it's not the way Leo Tolstoy um, says you should imitate the life of Christ. Christ, you know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, uh, sell all you have and follow me, etc., etc. You don't imitate the life of Christ, but 
with the spirit of Christ, you apply yourself in our new circumstances to do the best that you can for the common good. This is the law of philanthropy for wealthy, talented individuals. When he gets to the end of this, he says, such is the true gospel concerning wealth, obedience to which is destined someday to resolve the problem of the rich and the poor and to bring, quote, peace on earth among people, goodwill. Now we're talking real gospel, because that is Luke. So he didn't call this the gospel of wealth casually. He really sees it as the way to achieve what the author of Luke's gospel set out as the announcement of the angels to the shepherds when Jesus was born. So the angels announced it. Jesus brought it. And Carnegie is telling you how to achieve it. Well, if there's this gospel of wealth and a law of philanthropy, there must be a duty of wealth. And so he says that duty has two parts. First of all, most importantly, an example of modest, unostentatious living, providing moderately for those in your care. So this is the first duty of wealth. Second duty of wealth is that all surplus revenue are, revenues are trust funds, which the rich person will administer as he best calculates to benefit the community most. Now, to be fair, Andrew Carnegie actually lived this creed to an incredible degree. The Carnegie Libraries that are around the world, Carnegie Mellon University, the Carnegie Foundation, which still regularly can be heard sponsoring all kinds of things on NPR and PBS. Um, the, the tradition of Carnegie's understanding of the responsibility of philanthropy really quite fairly continues exactly what Carnegie said. Um, and uh, embodies, in many ways, what he envisioned. But I want to go back to our founders for a moment. Because if we go back to James Madison, we remember that Madison said that there was one circumstance under which no one would need any government. What was the circumstance in which Madison said, if only this, we would need no government? Madison said, if people were angels, we would need no government. And one could, I think, make a fair case that if every wealthy individual with surplus revenue, as Carnegie def defined it, functioned the way that our Andrew Carnegie did with respect to society and benefiting it. I don't want to get into how Carnegie made all his money. This is, after all, the era that ultimately gave us child labor laws and labor unions and you know, all kinds of protections for workers because the late 19th century, early 20th century American industrialists, part of their special talent for making money was 
not distributing it to their workers, right? So that's for another time. But if we talk about this the way he did in terms of once you have all this wealth, what do you do with it? If all people with surplus revenues were angels, this might actually work. And I would say Carnegie is a great example of when it did. To say that we're doing what's best for ourselves, we can actually construe that positively because if I want to do what's best for ourselves, I really need to know who ourselves are and consult with ourselves and ask what's best for ourselves collectively, broadly, which is in some cases better than saying what's best for ourselves what is God's will for us? Because, again, who's making that call? Am I just reading scripture on my own and saying, well, this is what God's will is for all of us and imposing that? That can be equally problematic. So, it, as I say, it's how you understand the doing what's best for ourselves. When we think about this and about how Carnegie may have come to this and what it looks like, one of the things I, would, I think is fascinating is to see the way in which his gospel of wealth in many ways makes him very much a child or a product of his time because he is post-enlightenment and he also has the influences of the 19th century and its developments behind him. So to look first at the enlightenment, we talked about human reason in the ascendancy and this is where Carnegie looks at experience. He says, look around you at the world. Look how it functions. Some people accumulate a lot. Some people manage their money well. Some people don't. Uh, that's, that is our experience. That's, he says, the law of competition. And so, rationally, how can you say that's wrong when that's the way it happens? Very much appealing to experience. He also, um, in relationship to the sovereign self, is very much about individualism. Noticing that people have different talents. Um, that doesn't necessarily put them in different stations in life, but it does say, yeah, some people can do this, other people can't. Um, the individual uh, person who gathers wealth has an individual responsibility in how they manage that. And so this is very much built on the enlightenment principles uh, that, that we've already explored. What develops in the 19th century are two other sort of broad social and philosophical trends. One is evolution, Charles Darwin. You heard in uh, Carnegie, the survival of the fittest, right, in the law of competition, the notion that the human race is almost inexorably progressing. Um, this is Hegelian philosophy that uh, uh, you take a, you know, what is and you take its, its antithesis and you bring them together and you get a synthesis that's an advance on both of those. And that becomes the new thing that is. And then there's a new antithesis and they come together in a synthesis. And this whole thing is an upward climb of progress. Um, it's why the, 18th, the 19th century gave us utopian uh, movements because uh, the idea was, well, with all this progress up, 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 ultimately it has to reach a pinnacle. That's the utopia. 
Um, Carnegie buys into this evolutionary uh, progress notion in his law of competition, survival of the fittest, and in the notion that there are ranks of talent. Um, different people have different talents. And, uh, so, and if the society is going to succeed and progress, it needs to depend on those who emerge through the law of competition as the most fit. And then in the whole development of the natural sciences in the 19th century, the fields of engineering and, and natural science, um, Carnegie builds his gospel around these laws. So this is not um, uh, an arbitrary assessment of how things are, but rather observing what the laws are by which economics and society operate and explaining how that is and therefore what our responsibilities are in relationship to it. Um, so he is in many ways, you know, his gospel of wealth in econo economic and uh, social terms is in many ways a very understandable product of the time in which he produced it and of the person who produced it. Lest we think this is restricted to the field of economics and business, we need to turn to another late 19th century figure by the name of Russell Conwell. Has anybody heard of Gordon Conwell College in Massachusetts? Well, this is the Conwell of Gordon Conwell. Um, he was a Baptist preacher in Philadelphia who in 1869, apparently, took a trip to the Middle East and was on a cruise on the Nile when he had a particular story told to him, which became the basis of a speech that he delivered more than 6,000 times in his lifetime. Uh, he was in enormous demand uh, to offer this speech. It was finally published in 1890, and it's kind of funny. The copy of the speech that I've referenced in it, he actually says at one point, now I could shorten the speech by not going into this next section, but since it's been published, you all know that it's part of the speech and expect to hear it, so here it is. Um, but that was the interplay of his spoken word and the, the printed word. Um, he was born in Worthington, Massachusetts. Um, he was, as I said, a Baptist preacher at the Temple Baptist Church in uh, Philadelphia, where in 1884 they founded a college that was the Temple Baptist College at the church. And uh, within three, four years or so, it had been renamed Temple College and they were developing more of a campus. By 1902, it had transformed into a standalone um, public university, actually, Temple University, uh, that we know today, Division I um, athletic program. Um, he died in 1925 in Philadelphia, and a lot of his reference within this speech, the Acres of Diamonds, um, refer to uh, his, uh, his community in Philadelphia who first heard the speech. At its core, 
this speech is bloom where you're planted. You don't have to go. The story that you heard on the Nile was about somebody who owned a farm and had a vision or a dream that said, you know, you, you will find acres of diamonds. And so he actually sold the farm, left his family in somebody else's care, went off on a journey all around the Mediterranean um, to find his acres of diamonds, never did, finally in despair, threw himself off the rock of Gibraltar into the sea and was never heard from again. Meanwhile, back home, the guy who uh, bought the farm was scraping around one day in the fields and turned up a diamond and then turned up another diamond and then turned up another diamond and it turned out he had owned the acres of diamonds already when he had the dream, didn't need to go anywhere to find his acres of diamonds. And Conwell uses this story to say, bloom where you're planted. Don't think that you have to attain high office before you become a great person. Be a great person where you are. Don't think you have to go somewhere else to be a great person. Be great where you are. And he talks about streetlights and, um, and roadways and school education in Philadelphia as, you know, bloom where you're planted. Do this work here. But he does it in the idiom of the opportunity for wealth. Greatness equals wealth. And so the whole idiom in which he talks about this is that when you do this, this is the way for you to become wealthy. Don't say, I need capital to get started. Just get started and the capital will flow to you. Um, he says, money is power. And you should be, we should be ambitious to acquire money because we can do more good with it than we can do without it. So absolutely, acquire money. That's a good thing. He says, you know, there's somebody who's going to protest, but you're a preacher of the gospel. Why aren't you preaching the gospel instead of preaching, uh, preaching about money? Well, he says, quote, to make money honestly is to preach the gospel because of what you can do with it. Because of, and he, so here we hear it translated from Carnegie straight into the religious arena where it, it's not only the gospel of wealth, but the gospel is wealth. To make money honestly is to preach the gospel. And from there, it's a very short step to the prosperity gospel. Um, early uh, folks who were involved with this listed there, E.W. Kenyon, Robert Tilton. More recent ones, Oral Roberts, the early 20th century, Kenneth Hagan, and much more recently, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, Creflo White, Reverend Ike, God loves green, and uh, Joel Osteen. Um, they live out and proclaim this notion that, uh, that to become wealthy is to fulfill what God's hopes and dreams are for you. Um, uh, Kate Bowler has a very useful book from the last couple of years entitled Blessed, subtitled The History of the American Prosperity Gospel Movement or something like that, but Blessed is the primary title. 
Um, and she talks about there being three streams that come into the prosperity gospel. Um, the Protestant work ethic, 19th century new thought, and Pentecostal emphasis on gifts. Um, the Protestant work ethic, um, if you don't think it's still out there, in 2006 there was a survey done and 61% of people said God wants people to be prosperous. Three out of five. God wants people to be prosperous. This is material prosperity. 2013, a group of Dutch researchers studying in 82 countries found a correlation, not between religion and happiness. It was more between religion and unhappiness. So Protestants across the board, wherever they lived, statistically reported no greater happiness with being wealthy or prosperous, but they reported significantly higher levels of unhappiness if they were unemployed. And non-Protestants in Protestant countries like the Netherlands and Sweden, even the non-Protestants in those countries came out with similar results. It's not that being prosperous makes you happier as a Protestant. After all, what makes Protestants happy? I mean, um, Calvin started with, right, um, ultimate depravity, was that the phrase? Um, but, um, uh, uh, so the, the, pros the prosperity doesn't necessarily make you happier than other people, but being unemployed really makes Protestants unhappy. And, and there is the Protestant work ethic. Max Weber in 1905, a sociologist, published a work called um, The Protestant, Spirit, uh, uh, Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, in which he argued that uh, it is a Protestant ethic from the Calvinist tradition that gives rise to this capitalist um, spirit that was invigorating the world. And notice, he's only... Now, 15 years after uh, Carnegie, so he's investigating that same cultural time. He in Europe, Carnegie here. And it's a, it, there's a whole argument that Weber gives from Calvinist predestination to the idea that if you are predestined as the elect, then there will be marks of election in your life. Um, those can include physical beauty, but they certainly include material well-being. Um, and so, if you want to live your life as one of the elect, um, you're going to find your vocation, your calling, your place, your employment. This is why unemployment makes you really depressed. Um, you're going to understand that waste is a sin because you should be accumulating and being frugal and uh, efficient with your uh, use of funds in order to uh, have the lifestyle of the elect, um, and charity is counterproductive. Um, again, Carnegie had said this explicitly in the Gospel of Wealth. He said, most charity does far less good than building large public works like libraries would do, because you give the charity to people and it just gets dissipated. You don't know what happens to it. It, it you know, doesn't do any good. 
Um, and this is part of that Protestant work ethic, is if you give people charity, it somehow diminishes their interest in work. And if they don't have a good work ethic, then they're never going to uh, live well in the world, at least as well as they can until they find out uh, on Judgment Day whether they were predestined or not. This is the um, don't give anybody a fish. Teach them how to fish. Right? Charity is you give a fish. Philanthropy is you build the library with the books where they can learn how to fish. Right? Um, so that's the Protestant work ethic part of it. The 19th century New Thought, again, we're going to see this in this whole sense of individualism and uh, self, the sovereign self. Um, and this was a source for Conwell, very much so. Um, it focused on the power of the mind, so this development in the 19th century gave us Mary Baker Eddy and her um, healing in the scriptures. It's something like that. Um, the, the basis of, uh, of uh, Christian science, uh, religious community. Um, there were mind cures that people had. Some people have said that Freud's talking cure of psychoanalysis was actually something of uh, a development of this notion that the human mind is capable of healing itself and of healing the body. And we shouldn't underestimate the power of the human mind. Let's develop it instead. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we also get out of this um, the eugenics movement that says those with more powerful minds have a, better, have a greater right to reproduce. And uh, you know, the evolutionary, you get all these things in the 19th century kind of come together. To, and we can see how they emerge in, in a lot of what our history has become. Um, Emerson's. Um, uh, transcend the transcendentalism of the human, um, that it's really the human that leads us to the transcendent um, rather than the transcendent coming to us. Um, and in many ways, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, all those self-help shelves in your bookstores um, kind of get their start in this new thought of the 19th century with human capability. Um, the third stream is uh, Pentecostalism and its emphasis on gifts of the Spirit, especially healing gifts, and the notion that when you are given the Holy Spirit, that will transform your life for the better. Um, it gives you power. Right? And the last segment um, then is that the prosperity gospel, of course, finds certain scripture on which it can carry its message. Um, John 10.10, 10, I have come to give life and that they may have life and have it abundantly. Mark 10, no one has left house and mother and father and uh, children and fields who will not in order for, my, you know, for my, the gospel's sake and my sake, who will not then receive back a hundredfold. So follow Jesus, leave it all behind, and you will receive back a hundredfold. James 4, 2. You don't have because you don't ask. All you have to do is ask, and you will have. And Malachi 3.10, prophet says, reports the words of God, Bring the full tithe into the treasury house, in effect, to test me. 
and I will give blessing until there is no need. And then if you go into the books, particularly of Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and some of the other prophets, there are so many promises in Scripture that are made to Israel about what its life in the promised land will be. If you think about this North American continent as having been the promised land to which your ancestors came from somewhere else, and that it was to be a city on a hill, although they don't use that language, but this notion of manifest destiny and um, the, the, the America as the new Israel, George Washington as the American Moses. I mean, these are images that are out there you know, pretty broadly within the public. So then all of those promises that are made to Israel about life in the promised land, they become promises made to Christians in America about their life when they properly follow the prosperity gospel. And once you've introduced the scripture, then you've laid the groundwork for the slogans, name it and claim it, and live without limits. Because after all, in a land of opportunity, there can be no limits until you run into them. But that's for another day.